Well, good afternoon, everyone. So, oh, thanks. Um, so nice to be here and be continuing um, our Jesus is the Image of God series. And if you remember, we have anchored this series into two key scriptures from the New Testament. So Colossians 1 talks about Jesus being the image of the invisible God. And Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so far, we've considered how Jesus is provider. We've considered how Jesus is creator. He's light. And last week, Andy took us through Jesus being our sustainer. And today, we're going to spend some time thinking about how Jesus is our comforter. He is our comforter. And it's kind of a message in two parts today. Um, we're going to start off by looking at Jesus. You'll be relieved to know. Um, as we open up to the Gospels, we have these incredible accounts of the person and the work of Jesus and the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And it's clear that as we encounter him, we find comfort. It might not always use that word, but it's words that to me are kind of connected to it. So we find peace. We find rest. We find an easing of our burdens. So we're going to have a look at a few verses from the Gospels of Matthew and John to kick us off. And they're recording the words of Jesus spoken over us. So let's hear these words. So Matthew 5, they're going to come up on the screen behind me. Matthew 5 said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Matthew 28, I am with you always, remaining with you perpetually, regardless of circumstance and on every occasion, even to the end of the age. Now let's look at the Gospel of John. He records Jesus saying in in, uh, chapter 14, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And that word helper can be expanded to mean comforter, advocate, intercessor, counselor, strengthener, standby, to be with you forever. John 14, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And finally, John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, these may well be really familiar verses to you, but aren't they wonderful words for us to be able to hold on to and remind ourselves of as we face the very real challenges that we might be facing that life can bring. So hold those in your heart for a minute, because I just want us to think about this. Um, Tim Mackey, who, for any of you that know me, know I'm a big fan. He's an American theologian who's a a professor whose approach to scripture is one I find really helpful. Um, He describes the human experience, and he summarizes it with this phrase, the great contradiction. And he says this great contradiction is both a theological and a personal issue. And the great contradiction is this. On the one hand, we believe that God is good. We do, don't we? We sing about it all the time. God is good. He is kind. He is with us. He is for us. That his will and purposes for our world are to heal and are to save. That he loves the world and he loves everyone in it. And we don't hold that as a belief just because it's a nice thing to believe. We hold that as a belief because we can point to the actions of God in human history and say, look, look at his kindness. 
Look at the demonstration of his care. And so for the Israelites, they, and in the Hebrew scriptures, that the main demonstration of God's care was the exodus of bringing the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt and into their promised land where he provided for them, um, where he answered their prayers, where he showed his mercy. As Christians, first and foremost, we can point to Jesus, right? God's action in entering human history, in living and dying and being raised for each one of us. I can point to the spirit breaking through into the lives of those around me, into the lives of this church, into my life, bringing hope and bringing joy, bringing peace, bringing transformation. So we hold that in one hand. God is good. Amen? Yeah? But you know what? In the other hand, I open up my BBC News app. And I see the horror, and I see the tragedy, and I see the pain that is so evident in the daily lives of so many people. How the sin and the moral compromise of others impact the stories of those around them and bring hardship. I reflect on the grief and the sorrow in the stories of those that I know. And I reflect on my own experiences of pain and sorrow too. How do those two things go together? God is good but we experience suffering and pain. And if you haven't felt this contradiction, well, just give it some time. (laughs) Because do you know what? It's the reality of living in a broken world. At one time or another, we will come face to face with that contradiction and we will need to make a decision about what we do in the midst of that contradiction. And whilst I'm not even going to attempt to give an explanation for this contradiction, that's not what I feel... Uh, kind of nudged from the spirit to talk about today, probably because I'd do a horrendous job. But I do want us to point to point us back to those um, promises that we looked at to begin with. And there's one in particular that resonates for me as we um, think about this contradiction and living in it. And it's this one from John 14, where Jesus says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. This is blindingly obvious to say, I know. But we only need a comforter when we need comfort. We only need comfort when things are in pain and are hard. I know that's so obvious, but just to make it, put that connect us together in our minds. The prevention of pain is never something that Jesus promised. But the comfort in it and the ultimate redemption of it, that we can rely on as we look to Jesus. According to my Vines Dictionary of uh, Bible Words, which as an aside is actually a much more engaging read than that title might suggest. Uh, But still, I enjoy it. Um, One biblical interpretation of to comfort is to be called to one side. To be called to one side. So the comforter is called to the side of the one who is in need of comfort. And on a person-to-person level, we know this, don't we? Actually, if we have stuff going on that's hard, that's painful, that's bringing us grief or sorrow, when we share that with someone around us that we trust, their coming to our side brings comfort, doesn't it? There is something very mysterious that happens within. Because if anything will have changed in those moments of beginning to tell our story to when we finish telling the story. Everything will be the same. Yet somehow, sharing that with them, their presence means that we feel less alone and we feel comforted. Like, do we know that feeling on a person-to-person level? 
I think in the same way there is a link between us being able to acknowledge and verbalize our situations that we're in that are hard and the way that we're feeling about them, to acknowledge that before God and experiencing his comfort, experiencing coming to our side right in the midst of that. And so that led me on to thinking and wanting to ask each one of us to consider, how do we talk to God? How do you talk to God? Of course, we praise and we thank him. We seek his wisdom and we seek his perspective and we seek his direction. And that is wonderful. What a wonderful thing that we can do that. But do we realize that our relationship with Jesus, that being a follower of him, does not make us immune to just normal human emotion? And some of those emotions are flipping hard, aren't they? They're hard to sit with and hard to deal with. And so what I've been pondering for myself for a long time now really is this. It's actually, do I also offer God my sorrow or my pain or my confusion? We've just been singing, I want to give all that's inside of my heart to you. Do we? When it actually looks pretty messy? When it maybe even feels a little bit theologically rocky? Because we know that God is good, and we know that Jesus is victorious, but man, it doesn't feel like that right now. Like, what do we do with that? But my experience is that when I am honest with God, when I acknowledge what is going on around me and how I'm feeling about it, and I choose to bring that to him, I experience in his comfort. There's something mysterious that goes on within some spirit-to-spirit way where I know I'm not alone, where I can feel him coming to my side, and that's where my comfort lies. So let's move on to the second part. And I want to take all of that as our context to be able to talk about what I want to talk about next, because I want to spend the rest of this time exploring a way that we can talk to God in, in our hardest moments, And it's the ancient prayer form of lament. Some of you might be familiar with lament. You might have, that might be a word that you are aware of. It might be something you already do. You might have no idea. So I'm going to go from the no idea and then we'll work from there. Um, But before we look at it, let me be clear. Like this talk doesn't have a subtext. I'm not, I'm not trying to secretly give some kind of commentary on where we find ourselves as a church. I'm talking about the very real fact that sitting in this room there will be multiple stories of all different kinds for all different reasons that bring pain and confusion and leave us wondering where is God in this how is his goodness going to get outworked that's what I'm talking to okay that's what I felt the spirit nudged me towards quite frankly I'd probably rather not talk about this but I cannot escape it Um, And so I'm going to be obedient and let's see what happens. Thanks, son. Um, And so my prayer for today is is like, however this may hold relevance and meaning for you, to whatever degree that is, 
is that actually we experience the comfort of Jesus as he comes to our side, as he's called to our side in the midst of hardship. And I'm not by any means going to do as thorough a job of this as I would like to, because lament is a huge topic to look at. We could look at the whole life of Job. We could look at the whole book of Lamentations. We could look at many, many Psalms. So what I've done is prayerfully chosen a really small portion of scripture, and I've got a few thoughts to offer. Um, and some resources to point you towards at the end, um, in case that's helpful. So, what does it mean then to lament? To, to lament doesn't mean to be or to feel sad or angry or sorrow or pain. Lamenting is what we do with that sadness. It's what we do with that grief. It's what we do with that sorrow. It means to intentionally direct whatever it is that is going on within to God. I've heard it described as being the unfiltered cry of the soul poured out to God. Rich Velodis, who is a, a pastor in New York, who is one of my current favorites to listen to, um, he has said this, whilst our problems are unlikely to get fixed in that moment, lamenting has a mysterious way of meaning our lives get formed. You see, to lament is not a posture of whinging and whining and complaining and moaning. It's a posture of worship. And we get formed and we get transformed in this unique expression of it. It's an extraordinary act of surrender, of faith, and of trust. It's trust that the God who was redeemed before is going to do it again. Lament is an act of remembering in the midst of sorrow and of sadness that this is who God is because this is who God was Lament allows us to draw on a deep, ancient reservoir of faith on the history of God's work in the world, in the history of God's work in the lives of those around us, in the history of God's work of our own lives. It allows us to draw on that, and it draws on a trust that then pulls us through to the other side of whatever it is we might be facing. It's a trust that reminds us that God is with us, that he listens, and that he cares about what is going on. So we're going to open up to the book of Psalms, which is a book of songs which articulate a wide spectrum of human emotion um, and human experience. So there's words of joy and celebration. There's words of justice and anger, of worship and of uh, repentance. And there is words of lament and of protest. Almost one third of the 150 poems and prayers in, in this book are generated out of the pain of that contradiction that we've talked about in the form of lament. So for example, David starts Psalm 13 with, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And I don't know if that how long cry is generated out of sorrow or frustration or despair. How long, O Lord? That re is repeated 20 times throughout the book of Psalms. Psalm 88 doesn't resolve at all with phrases like, my soul is full of troubles, and it ends with, darkness is my closest friend. Which I know is, I know that's not great, but I do just hear that line from Trolls. Hello, darkness, my old friend. That's all I hear. when I, So I know David wouldn't have meant that. And I do, I am trying to connect with him in his pain, but I cannot, and I know it's not actually by Poppy from Trolls, John was just like, who is it? Simon and Garfunkel. I don't even know. It's irrelevant. Sorry. Um, but like, that's painful. That's where he ends. That darkness is his closest friend. Have you ever felt like that, I wonder? 
These laments, they don't offer an intellectual or a theological answer to this contradiction. God is good, yet suffering and sorrow exist. And they're not trying to. What they're trying to do is give us language for how we pray through that contradiction. And Psalm 22 in particular gives us this incredible expression of lament and protest and ultimately of trust. And it's this expression of lament that Jesus spoke and he prayed the words of this poem as he was dying on the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That should tell us something of the importance of these lament poems for Jesus and for me too, and for us too, if we're going to be his followers. So let's turn there. Um, If you have some form of app or actual Bible, Um, I'm not going to be reading all of it, so it would be helpful for you to have the full thing in front of you. I'm definitely just picking things out. Um, But we're told at the start, if you see that you have a little note at the top, that tells us that Psalm 22 is to be played to the tune of the Doe of the Dawn. Do we know that one? Anyone familiar? No, nobody knows. Lost to history. But it does tell us something. It's telling us about the melody for this prayer as it's played as part of Israel's worship in the temple. So, although this was originally a prayer of David, generated out of some anguished but unknown human, his life experience, it became part of the rhythms of prayer for a whole nation. Let's pull out a few verses and hear David's anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can we already hear that my? Like there's a personal relationship going on here. He assumes that God is his God. And so the absence is all the more painful. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. And then 16 to 18, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. What a bleak picture. But you're glad you came here today. Like, it's not, it's not hard to pick on David's pain here, is it? That is bleak. It's highly descriptive language, expressing in the most powerful terms the depth of emotion going on within. But you know what? These human words to God become, through the scriptures, God's words to us about how we can talk to him in times of pain and suffering. He's inviting us, I think, to name what is wrong, to draw attention to it, and to hold that contradiction together in faith. And I don't know about you, but it feels uncomfortable for me to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that feel uncomfortable to you? It does to me. I feel well on theologically rocky ground with that. I don't know what to do with that. And I wonder whether part of that reason is that have we somewhere along the way understood to express this kind of sorrow and sadness before God means that we are somehow less full of faith 
that we are somehow less spiritual? Have we too heavily emphasized Paul's words of rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say rejoice, which is true, but we've completely forgotten that there is a whole book called Lamentations. There's a, I just wonder, Rich Lotus again, he says this, our spiritual aliveness is not outworked and measured in our ability to suppress our sadness and sorrow. It's seen in our ability to lament in response to it. I find this really helpful. I wonder if there is a shift of perspective that some of us, myself included, need to, need to work through. Like, do we allow ourselves, do we allow those around us to express despair and sadness or anguish or unhappiness? Or even if we do, are we aiming to move ourselves or move others through it as quickly as we can so that we feel a little bit theologically safer again? Kathleen, uh, Kathleen O'Connor, in her book, um, she's written a book called Lamentations and the Tears of the World. She asked this question. Is it possible for us to understand and experience suffering and pain as sacred? Is it possible for us to understand and experience pain and suffering as sacred? It's this idea that actually to be vulnerable before God with whatever it is that's going on around us, with, with however that is making us feel, that actually that is holy ground. That is just as holy as being able to say, Jesus, you are victorious. Jesus, you are good. I trust in you. Thank you for who you are. All of that is amazing and wonderful, but it is just as holy to be crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What if we really considered that? Maybe perhaps we wouldn't be rushing ourselves or others past whatever it is they're going through. And we wouldn't be denying ourselves or others the acknowledgement of suffering or be putting limits on the experience of it or urging ourselves or others to move through it as quickly as possible to get to some end point, whatever, however we might measure that. So let's continue with Psalm 22. After 18 verses, 18 You'll be relieved I'm not reading all of them, of detailed, anguished descriptions of how David feels. Verses 19 to 21 have, have three short requests to God. And I am summarizing, so I'm making them even shorter. But it's this, deliver me, save me, rescue me. Deliver me, save me, rescue me. 18 verses of the hearts turning to wax scenario. Three, deliver me, save me, rescue me, of request. And I wonder whether the assumption that we have when hardship comes is that God already knows what's happening. God already knows how I feel about it. So what I need to do is tell him what I think he should be doing about it. This psalm has precisely the opposite assumption. The assumption in this prayer is that, that God's good with knowing what to do. He's got that part. He doesn't need help with that. And that actually what God is most interested in hearing is me describing how I'm processing all that's going on within and I think part of the reason for that is that it's as we acknowledge what's going on, as we invite God into that, it creates a doorway for him to enter through and come to our side to bring his comfort. So to begin that process of healing and of transformation. And that might be quicker. That might take minutes. It might be slower. And do you know what? It might take years, depending on what it is. But if we are unable to even acknowledge what, what is in existence within us and around us, if we simply try and bypass that emotion and that experience, do you know what? I think we're going to end up stuck. 
And I think we'll find that that pain will rear its head in some other form, in some other situation. And of course, we want to be people, don't we, of faithfulness, of hope, of joy, of forgiveness, no matter what the circumstances. But that is, I just don't think that is the same as denying how we feel or exiling our harder emotions. Because actually, God, God cannot trans- transform what we don't even acknowledge is there to begin with. There's a partnership going on that we're being invited to. After verse 21, there's a whole shift in the prayer. It turns from um, lament and protest and request to praise and celebration of God's faithfulness, which David invites those around him to enter into. And so at some point, David experienced deliverance. Verses 27 to the end has David talking as if the story he's gone through, so that lamenting and praying, that making requests, having the prayers answered, inviting others in, he seems to see this story as a small example of the story God is weaving in the whole of his world as he meets the brokenness and suffering of this world with his mercy and with his salvation. So 27 and 28, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. And finally, verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He has done it. Good way to end David. But you know what? In my heart, with some of the things I'm facing... I ask this question, what if I don't make it to the second half of Psalm 22? What what if it stays unresolved? What if it stays unresolved like Psalm 88? Where we don't actually know how God's going to bring deliverance or what that will look like. And this is where the importance of Jesus, Jesus quoting this psalm as he hangs on the cross becomes central, I think. Because there are over 20 places where the authors um, draw attention to or use language or make connection between what is happening to Jesus on the cross and details within this prayer. So the mocking and insults of others in verses 6 and 7. The piercing of hands and feet in verse eight, uh, 16. The gambling of clothing in verse 18. And of course the fact that Jesus cried out the first first line of this prayer as he as he was on the cross so what's happening here because psalm 22's primary purpose is not prophecy it's lament it's david's prayer but it became the prayer of thousands of others after him to pray through in their times of suffering and it became the prayer of jesus And the great paradox of Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? Is that on the cross, the Son of God became God forsaken. Jesus doesn't just sympathize with human suffering. He self-identifies with it by entering into it, into David's anguish, into the thousands of other sins who have ever felt that confusing and disorientating sense of, where is God in this? Where is, where is his rescue? And they've prayed this prayer too. And Jesus crying out this prayer creates space for me and it creates space for you to pray this prayer. And it gives us an anchor to hold on to because God did not despise or scorn the suffering of that afflicted one. God did not ultimately hide his face from Jesus. Jesus is God entering into our suffering and anguish so that he can conquer and heal it by his love. I may never experience the second part of Psalm 22 with some of the things in my life. But you know what? Jesus did. 
Jesus did. And as we make our confession of faith in, as followers of Jesus, and as we put our trust in him and just hang on to him for dear life at times, you know how that feels, right? We're trusting that what was true of him in his resurrection will be true of me one day and will be true of you one day. And we may experience that now. I absolutely believe in a God of breakthrough in a moment. We may experience it in weeks, months, or years to come. Or do you know what? We may experience it in a new creation. But we will experience it one way or another. And I realize that this is not an easy message for some. It's not for me. Like I said, I would much rather have not been talking on this today. But we are here together, aren't we? We're here to pray, we're here to worship, and we're here to experience his comfort in those places as he comes to our side. And so we've got um, a little bit of time. And I'd like to invite you to take communion in response to this. So I'm hopeful that everyone has their little communion thing. I don't even know what they're called. Um, And if you don't and you'd like one, just wave your hand and and son and... uh, John, will um, help you with that. And as we do so, you're going to, yeah, band, thanks, Ruth, feel free to come up. Um, You take communion in whatever way and timing you want. But as we do so, let's remember that these symbols of bread and wine or rubbish wafer and grape juice, um, they speak, (laughs) I am thankful for them. Didn't mean to disrespect the invention of those. Um, But they speak of the moment that Jesus cried out this prayer and where he identified with me and with you in the midst of our suffering and so many across our world right now. And so the band are going to lead us in a song whilst we do this. And it might not be a song you're familiar with, but that's okay. If you'd like to um, stand and join in with the singing and take communion when you're ready, um, you, you do that, Sarah. I appreciate your eagerness. Um, Like, do that. Do you know what? If you, if for wherever, whatever it is you're facing, if you want to sit with Psalm 22 in front of you, perhaps, and take communion in your own time, you do that. Perhaps you're able, going to be able to talk to God in a way that you maybe haven't before, but actually He is inviting us into. Do that. Perhaps you want someone to pray with you. And so either ask someone around you or come to the front and we will figure that out together. And we will come and stand with you. But know this, that Jesus is with us. He is here by our side, bringing his comfort. So let's look to him to be all that we need him to be.